Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, now offering an online master's degree in teaching. A state license can be earned after the first summer semester with an opportunity to teach grades 7 through 12. Accepting applications now through May. More information at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, why historically black colleges and universities in Mississippi are an important place to start anti-tobacco campaigns. I hope to see a healthier community. I hope to see more people being open about the fact that they have these habits that they cannot break. Then find out why farmers are returning to more traditional southern crops this spring. And in our book club, author David Billings tells us why, despite the civil rights movement and an African-American president, America remains, in his words, a nation hardwired by race. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. College is one of six historically black colleges and universities in Mississippi pursuing a tobacco-free campus. Truth Initiative, a nonprofit organization, is urging all Mississippi HBCUs to implement tobacco-free campus policies with hopes to improve the health of the community. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report nearly 30% of African-American adults say they use tobacco. The CDC says tobacco use contributes to heart disease, cancer, and stroke, which are the three leading causes of death for black adults. Kristen Tersakian works with Truth. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware tobacco companies target minorities at higher rates. Truth has partnered with CVS Health Foundation to promote the efforts of more than 100 HBCUs and community colleges to adopt a 100% tobacco-free policy. How did the Truth Initiative and CVS come up with the idea for the HBCU program? There are more than 1,800 colleges around the country with a 100% smoker tobacco-free policy. And when we looked at the numbers of community colleges and HBCUs with policies, we saw that there was a lot of room to grow. So we thought we would take this successes from colleges across the field and work with more than 100 colleges across the country to get them to adopt policies. What other HBCUs in Mississippi have you been working with? We've worked with Rust College. What is the goal of the tobacco-free of the HBCU program? So the goal is to get our college grantees to adopt a 100% tobacco-free policy, meaning that tobacco cannot be used on the campus grounds anywhere. 
and then we help staff and students quit when they're ready to. Tell me a little bit about how that grant will help the universities or colleges. The grant can be used to create a task force, a campus-wide task force of folks who coordinate the policy efforts to do education of students, staff, and faculty, and then to also have services on campus to help folks quit. How has the tobacco industry profiled minority communities? There is more advertising of tobacco products in African-American neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods. So we have focused our efforts on HBCUs and community colleges to help combat this. And what has been some of the results of that profiling? We see a greater use of menthol tobacco products in African-American communities and higher rates and more advertising in those neighborhoods. Are college kids still smoking? What are some of the tobacco products that they are using? College students do use the traditional cigarettes, but there's many different tobacco products, hookah, cigars, e-cigarettes. So there's lots of different products for them to choose from. Why would it be important to make sure that college campuses are tobacco-free? We want to clear the air of secondhand smoke have the campuses be clean from tobacco litter and create an environment um, where smoking is not the norm and to promote an environment uh, to help people quit. Kristen Terzakian with the Truth Initiative. She says tobacco companies disproportionately target black communities. Maya May is a graduate consultant working for the Truth Initiative on Tougaloo's campus. She tells our Alexis Ware the policy encourages students to fight tobacco use. They're pretty much helping us to make sure that our campus is completely smoke and tobacco free. They um, gave us a grant to work on our policy so that everyone on the campus knows exactly what they can and cannot do as well as um, visitors that come onto our campus. What is that? What would the tobacco free policy look like on campus? It's something that a policy that we're written that no one on campus as like students, faculty, visitors are not allowed to smoke or chew tobacco, anything. E-cigarettes are not allowed on our campus at all, anywhere on our campus. How would you go about implementing a tobacco-free campus? As far as the policy goes, um, one of the things that we have on there is campus security and others that are on campus. If you see someone that's smoking, you know, let them know, hey, we cannot do that. And then the next step, if you are found doing that again, would be to become a part of our successor plan and kind of help better your life instead of just, you know, giving you a fine for it. So can you tell me a little bit about what that plan is? Well, right now we're um, using a app that Truth has started. Um, it's called the This Is Quitting app. And what it does is once you put in your email address and your phone number, it'll send you text message updates. And you can go on the app and it'll give you facts about what happens if you smoke or things like that. And um, the school is able to record or look at who's actually been on the app. And um, once we go through that little plan, if they're found again, then that's when they'll go through the fine process because we're trying to make sure that not only we're safe ourselves, but you're making sure that everybody else's campus is on safe because of the things that we've seen through secondhand smoke that that can cause. Is the app free and is it available to the public or is it just for college campuses? Yes, it's free and it is available to the public. It's, um, this is quitting and um, all you have to do is go and download it and you register yourself. If anyone else outside of a, you know, a campus or a school that wants to do it, they can use it as well. 
So what is the time frame that Tougaloo is looking at before they are completely 100% smoke-free? Hopefully by May we'll have a final draft of our policy and we're able to uh, present that to the board and have them look at it. And we're planning on by the fall everything that we put out as far as the policy and the student handbook and the faculty handbook and made sure that the mural is completed and there's signage everywhere so that it can be seen. Who will make the final decision? Do students have an input? Students do have an input. Um, there's like surveys that they um, have completed and can complete. And there's also three, four students that are on the task force that's helping us to write the policy. And so we, you know, use their input as well. Tell me some of the points that are included in the policy. In the policy, it kind of gives you a breakdown of what smoking is, what tobacco is. Um, it gives you those different definitions that some people don't know what e-cigarettes are or they don't know what hookah is, but that's still considered smoking and tobacco, and it's something that we can't have on the campus, as well as it gives you uh, responsibilities of the students, of the faculty, of the public safety, and um, it also gives a breakdown of the penalties. So if you're caught smoking the first time, you get a warning. The second time, you have to register for the, the secession plan and the app. The third offense would be a fine, and the fourth offense would be a fine. After that, it goes to the judicial committee and public safety, and they give you a final uh, penalty after that. What do you hope to see after Tougaloo becomes 100% smoke-free? I hope to see a healthier community. I hope to see more people being open about the fact that they have these habits that they cannot break. You know, I hope to see more faculty as well. So I'm hoping that we come together as a community and kind of help each other as far as quitting smoking or using doing other things that can help them while they're here on campus at work or at school or, you know, living in the residential halls. Maya May is working with Truth Initiative at Tougaloo College. Thank you so much for speaking with me. All six HBCUs in Mississippi are receiving a grant from Truth that will help them promote a tobacco-free campus with signs, shirts, and events. Coming up, we'll take a look at what farmers are expected to plant this spring and why. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. We are more than halfway to receiving the 300 applications needed to get an MPB car tag. MPB needs less than 130 more people to sign up. We know you can help make this happen. All it takes is a one-year commitment of $31. This is another way you can help MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. Sign up at mpbonline.org slash cartag. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi farmers are looking at the economy as they plan their crops for this year. With cotton and soybean prices up, farmers will increase what they plant to fuel the state's $6 billion agriculture economy. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently released its crop outlook for 2017. They predict Mississippi farmers will also plant fewer acres of corn and rice. Brian Williams is assistant professor at Mississippi State University. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby about each crop. 
when we kind of look at the the numbers that they put out, they're expecting about 550,000 acres of of cotton. That's a 26% increase from last year when we had 435,000 acres. Um, On soybeans, they're expecting us to plant two and a quarter million acres. Um, That's up about 10% from last year in the state. And then corn, uh, they're expecting us to have 530,000 acres, which is uh, 29% decrease from last year when we had 750,000 acres. So um, really it looks like we're we're seeing a lot of shift in from from the corn to our other commodities. Um, Rice, we're down 38% too. 195,000 acres last year and 120,000 this year. So, um, yeah, it, it does look like the acres are shifting away from corn and into soybeans and cotton. Um, I, I think a lot of the reason for that is if, if we look at the markets, um, rice markets really haven't been doing that well. Uh, corn is about the same as a year ago, but cotton and uh, soybeans are both those markets are actually up from a year ago. So it's, it's made them look a little bit more profitable, a little more appealing for our producers. So it sounds like good news, bad news. Good news for cotton and soybeans, right? Right, yeah. Um, and, and like I say, with the, the markets doing better, um, that, that does make them look a whole lot better. Uh, the, the exports really for both of those crops, for, for soybeans and cotton, have been uh, – fairly strong, and I think that's really what's helping to, to give those two markets a little bit of a boost uh, relative to some of our other markets. But not so good news for corn and rice. Yeah, um, the, the rice markets in particular have, have really been struggling over, really over the last year or so, and, and maybe even a little bit longer than that. Um, corn markets are, are fairly steady. Um, we, we have had strong corn exports, but our demand for corn really just hasn't been able to, to keep up with. We had a as, a, as a nation, we had a record corn crop, corn harvest last fall, and demand just just can't seem to keep up with, with what we can produce. Let's talk about each crop specifically, cotton. So cotton, kind of looking at the numbers, um, again, 550,000 acres, that's uh, up 26% from a year ago. Um, in terms of looking at the markets, we're... Um, sitting at, at um, here in, in the state, we're sitting at about 73 cents, uh, almost 74 cents a pound, which is, is a little bit better than we were a year ago. Um, so that's, that's definitely helping to, to steal a few acres away from some of our other crops. Thanks so much for being on Mississippi Edition this morning. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Mississippi State Professor Brian Williams with MPB's Mark Rigsby. Justin Ferguson is National Affairs Coordinator at Mississippi Farm Bureau. He tells our Mark Rigsby the top choices among farmers. Uh, As you know, farmers are going to plant for uh, an economic viability standpoint, and so cotton seems to be the more uh, attractive uh, uh, option uh, this year among among commodities. Uh, And we're excited. Uh, You know, the things we've seen here in Mississippi – um, our production practices over the last 10 years allow us to uh, to switch mostly part of the most over overall part of the state switch back and forth from cotton to corn. Um, there is still a cotton infrastructure uh, here in the state to um, be able to handle that crop, and uh, cotton has a, a significant um, a larger significant economic footprint uh, here in the state. You know, from a 
handling, production, uh, ginning capacity, you know, from a local sort of value-added economic standpoint, uh, cotton has a, uh, is, is a, major, a major economic factor here in the state. With nearly 30% less corn acreage expected and 40% less rice, what does that really mean for both of those crops? It means there's still going to be uh, producers that, that plant those crops. Uh, Mark, there's still going to um, producers that have, have many times traditionally grown the crop, but uh, it, it, it simply means that this year uh, c- cotton and soybeans are uh, a better option for them. Uh, the, the farm economy is in a really tight uh, situation now with uh, with prices being down overall. If you look at a five year, six year trend, um, it means you know next year we may go back to corn, uh, but this year cotton and soybean uh, are certainly the most attractive uh, attractive crops for our farmers to plant. When it comes to alternative crops like uh, peanuts or sweet potatoes, are you seeing farmers considering planting those crops instead of corn and rice? What we're seeing this year, Mark, as far as uh, peanuts and sweet potatoes go. Or, uh, their uh, their production is going to be about the same as last year. Um, sweet potato growing sweet potatoes is a very unique crop to grow. It and it requires uh, additional equipment, very specialized equipment. So you don't see quite that level of swing uh, in acreage from uh, in peanuts and sweet potatoes that you do uh, see in cotton and corn and, and the other major crops. But um, we, we're seeing those numbers uh, remain about the same as they were, uh, fairly fairly level compared to last year. But would you agree that it is an option for uh, an alternative for, for a farmer that's looking for something else than that they might be uh, looking to get something more profitable? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Many of the farmers that have produced peanuts and sweet potatoes uh, Mark have have a very solid market. Um, uh, they, 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 there's less volatility uh, in, in their market uh, from you know from that angle, and uh, so yes, I, I think you'll see continued uh, continued uh, production of of peanuts and sweet potatoes in the state by by many of the farmers. Justin, thanks for being on Mississippi Edition this morning. Thank you, Mark. Experts say growers will continue to look for more profitable alternate crops. Coming up, here, Mississippi author David Billings discuss his life, his memoir, and his perception of race in U.S. history. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. On Creature Comforts, we talk about Mississippi's abundant wildlife with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and a special guest each week. Also, Dr. Troy Major is on hand to answer questions about your pets. I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us Thursday mornings at 9 with a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6 for Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi native David Billings provides an intimate vignette from his personal life and situates his experiences in a broader historical context in his book, Deep Denial, Persistence of White Supremacy in United States History and Life. He begins with his white working class boyhood in Mississippi and Arkansas and shares the story of how his uncle was killed by a black man. He tells us that what followed that experience shaped his vision of race and his future. He was murdered 
after arriving home from work a bit early and a neighbor, a young black man, was casing the place, I guess you could say, and was surprised and a fight ensued which ended in my uncle's murder. That experience has really propelled me in in my own life. We were visited by Ku Klux Klan and my uncle had six other brothers and two sisters and they came to our house and asked what would we have them do? And I remember my uncle quite vividly saying, we don't want you to do nothing. We're not that kind of family. And I just sighed because I wasn't sure what kind of family we were. But it was that phrase, we're not that kind of family, that has propelled me in my life. And I've been working against racism ever since, almost 50 years now. I tell stories about basically each decade of my life, and then I try to juxtapose those with what was going on in the country at the same time. The purpose being, what were the messages I was receiving as a white person that even if I disagreed with them, I certainly was formed by these messages. White supremacy is not limited to the South. You know, the South has the perception, perhaps correctly, you can tell me, of of housing the Ku Klux Klan, of being racist, more racist than any other part of the country. Is that true? Not really. It takes different forms in the South and particularly in, in Mississippi. But white supremacy, as I define it, is a nationwide phenomenon that has worldwide implications Really, the white supremacists are not these hate groups and nationalists, as we now say. We're heads of universities and hospitals. We're all of those of us that comprise what I call the knowing class. And we abhor racism, but we don't do anything about it. We allow it to continue because our place in the society, again, often unconscious, it has been so beneficial to us. The hate groups in some ways buffer our inability to understand how racism infects this nation, and it's particularly through its institutional framework. Speak a little bit about the presidency of Barack Obama. It was very interesting to me, the, the reaction to President Obama and even his wife, Michelle, so extreme. If Obama hadn't been black, the Obamas would be the model of what this nation says president and his family should be. And yet, he was very much disliked and even hated in some circles. And he took a tremendous beating, I would say, through his eight years of the presidency, even though the polls had him as being very popular, you know, much of the part that Obama was subjected to as president was an unconscious racism and also a very conscious opposition. The civil rights era is often referred to as a very dark time in our nation's history. The way you talk about race and its impact even now, it sounds like there continues to be a dark time in our country. There's no question about it. Part of that darkness, if you will, is that we don't study race. We don't understand what it is. We don't understand our role in it. We are free as white people, uh, in my opinion, 
to define race any way we want. And thus we don't study it because it's just something that is based on our personal and more individualistic reactions to things. But racism is much more than that. There's no profession in this country that requires an understanding of race and its implications in order to become a lawyer, a doctor, certainly a congressperson. We just ignore it, and yet it continues to eat away at our soul as the United States. What do you most hope readers take away from your book? I hope that it is seen as a way for other white people to examine what messages have they received over the course of their life that have been internalized around the subject of race and acted out. Mississippi, unfortunately, we really aren't impacted by the wisdom and the experience of our own black Mississippians. Redistricting in this state means that the white leadership is not accountable to black people at all, and we are the worst for it. David Billings is the author of Deep Denial, The Persistence of White Supremacy in United States History and Life. Mr. Billings, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Deep Denial documents the 400-year racialization of the United States. An epilogue discusses strategies for dismantling white supremacy and undoing racism in America. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, MPB's Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.